Father, thank you for this hour. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to marvel at your goodness and your power and your sovereign rule over this world. I was reminded yesterday about Y2K and how everyone predicted there would be this horrific disaster that would affect the whole world, and it never came. And now we see something that we could never have predicted that has affected the whole world. And I remember the psalmist who said, the Lord in heaven laughs at our schemes and our pretense and our supposed wisdom. He does as he pleases. And Lord, you do all things well. And even this is for your glory. And so I pray that you would teach us to worship. Show us how dependent we are upon you. And give us the grace and the courage to take risks while this pandemic is going on that we might share the gospel with others and enable them by your grace to find what we have found in Jesus Christ, eternal life and eternal joy. Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. In December of 2019, a pneumonia outbreak was reported in Wuhan, China that caught the attention of the medical community. On the 31st of December 2019, the outbreak was traced to a novel strain of coronavirus, which was eventually given the name COVID-19 by the World Health Organization. It has since then been renamed with a more complicated title that no one will ever use except those who need to. It's difficult to pinpoint the origin of this new strain of coronavirus, but it's it's commonly thought to have begun in the seafood market near Wuhan, China, though no one really knows. Regardless of its origin, however, it, it is now spread to every inhabited continent on the globe. Stunning, isn't it? Just a few weeks ago, it was something that was over there, way over there. And now it has been officially labeled a global pandemic. As of March 14th, that was yesterday, 150,000 cases of coronavirus pneumonia have been reported in approximately 150 countries and territories. More than 5,600 people have died from the disease, while over 73,000 have recovered. And I realize that those statistics are uh, already old because they were posted yesterday, which means that the numbers are significantly higher. We know in Italy that there was over 2,200 new cases, depending on which news outlet you're looking at. Regions affected by the most major outbreaks include mainland China, of course, South Korea, Iran, Italy, and Spain, the pandemic has resulted in serious travel restrictions and has provoked somewhat of a low-grade panic among people who feel the need to purchase necessary items, not only food, but water and, of course, toilet paper, which has been the butt of every joke imaginable over the last couple of weeks. Most recently, Tarrant County judge 
Glenn Whitney declared a local state of disaster due to public health emergency, which will last for seven days and perhaps be renewed at the end. This was an effort to mitigate the spread of COVID-19, which is why so many of you are not here. We asked you not to be here uh, so that we could uh, be in compliance with what the city has asked us to do. We don't think that what they've asked us to do is, is uh, beyond reason, uh, nor is it beyond what we think the scriptures call us to do, which is basically this, that until April 20th, any events over 250 people should be canceled. Additionally, they strongly recommend organizers of events of any size in which people will be in close contact to cancel, postpone those events, if at all possible. And so let there be no mistake, our world is being confronted with a formidable difficulty that we cannot fully control. And this is not the first time in my lifetime that such, thing, such a thing has happened. Who can forget the, the horrific Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004 that took the lives of, are you ready, 200,000 people in the span of a, an hour or two? Or how about the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that struck and destroyed the large, a large section of northeastern Japan where 50,000 people lost their homes and 10,000 at least lost their lives? And who will ever forget the televised images of entire towns being washed away in a matter of minutes right before our very eyes? The debris field of homes and buildings, boats, automobiles and planes and bodies washed as far out as three miles before the power of the water finally relented. This, unlike any televised disaster in my lifetime, offers a picture, however inadequate, of what the Genesis flood must have been like. To see it, even on the internet, was to be left breathless and awe-stricken and sick we can only imagine the terror that must have gripped the hearts of those who were able to escape to higher ground as they watched their homes and their friends and their families and their streets and, and everything just washed away. And yet this was not the end of the disaster. Reminiscent of the story of Job, who having heard of the devastating news of one disaster, turned to find another messenger arriving to deliver further catastrophe. We watched in disbelief as an international news agency reported on the damage to a nuclear facility in Fukushima, hit hard by both earthquake and tsunami. One explosion after another over the next several days revealed the horrible reality that several nuclear reactors had been compromised. They were failing and threatening to rain down radiation upon this already earthquake and tsunami-ravaged nation. That week of terror for Japan, the whole world was watching these events. But with the outbreak of COVID-19, the whole world is collectively experiencing this event. Though significantly lesser in impact so far. And once again, as we watch and wait, 
Many of us are asking, maybe not many of us in this room or in our church, but many of us in this world are asking, where is God? Where is God? If he is a God of love, why doesn't he protect us from such disaster and disease? And whenever events like this take place, there is always going to be religious leaders who are ready to say things like this. Don't blame God for this disaster. And God plays no active role in this disaster. And whenever it happens, it makes me want, want to put on the brakes on whatever else that I was planning on teaching or preaching to offer a biblical response to those kinds of comments. And so this morning, rather than continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, I really want us to focus rather for a few minutes to, on, on what, does, what is God's role in all of this. You know, I'm calling this message the God of disasters and diseases. And so let's talk about this. I don't, I don't have a snappy outline for you, but just a few pointers to hang our thoughts on. Number one, the Christian's first response to calamity. How should we respond to calamity? What should be our first response to calamity? Lest my intentions be mistaken here this morning, it needs to be said that when calamity strikes, it's usually not the best time to get all theological with people. That's not the first thing that we should do. Rather, this is the time to help and to pray. God calls us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, Romans 12, 15. As we have opportunity, we are to do good to all men, especially to believers. I remember a fateful day in Kansas, my first church assignment, 1992, when the senior pastor and I were out on a call, and you know there were no cell phones back then. Can you believe it? And we came back to the office, and the secretaries were waiting for us at the door. And they reported to us that a young father in our church had, had been killed when he tried to drive his ice truck. He was working for an ice company, and a train was coming, and, and he couldn't stop. Uh, his truck was heavy. He just couldn't get it to stop. And, um, and he was hit and killed. Had a wonderful wife had at least two children. The backstory on this is for months we had been praying for this young man's salvation. It was really a remarkable story. Uh, in our small group, his wife would say, please pray for my husband, he's lost. And would you ask the Lord to save him? And he would never come to our small group or anything. And, and uh, wouldn't you know it, the Lord answered our prayer. He came to Christ pretty radically. Um, in fact, that next Sunday, he was so excited about it, that next Sunday, we baptized him. The next morning, he died. I'll never forget that. That was probably the darkest day, one of the darkest, maybe one of the three darkest days in, in my 28, almost 29 years of ministry. I mean, what do you do? I'm fresh out of seminary, had no idea what to do to minister to the young mother, 
And what would we say to the children when they got home from school and we had to tell them that their daddy's not coming home tonight or ever? What do you do? What do you do when there's disaster? What do you do when there's calamity in someone else's life? What do you say? Well, for a long time, you probably don't say much of anything. You just hold them and weep with them and assure them that you will be there for them, that their church family, if they have one, will be there for them. And if they don't have a a church family, our church family will be there for you anyway. And then as people begin to disperse from the hospital or the funeral home, we find ways to get involved with alleviating the suffering, cooking meals. Some people gave money. Uh, Someone set up a prayer chain and a needs chain. This is what believers do when calamity strikes. In times like this, our ministry doesn't begin with theological conversation or theological persuasion. It begins with practical assistance and fervent prayer. And part of our practical assistance and ministry of love toward the church body here and to our community right now is that our church family is making every reasonable attempt to mitigate the spread of this vexing and sometimes deadly disease. Eventually, however, people will perhaps want answers. They want to know something about what God might be doing. People ask these questions in the paper and, and on the internet, and they come to wrong conclusions. This is what I want to focus on for the remainder of our time, because I think it's important that we have a biblical answer to offer people, not only about the COVID-19 calamity, but for future, sometimes very personal tragedies that we will encounter together. And so... The first step, the first thing that we do as believers is we don't run in with our theology. We, we run in with both arms. We wrap around them and we pray with them and we weep with those who weep. There are so many people today who are weeping over the loss of loved ones. We need to be careful about making jokes about this virus. It's not funny I realize that we sometimes deal with difficulty like this by uh, making fun of it and, and all of that stuff. And I suppose some of that's not inappropriate. But we need to be careful that we're not insensitive about it and that our main goal would be to glorify God in our ministry to others and maybe gospel ministry to others. And so that's first. Second, I I want to say very loud and clear that the Lord reigns over calamity, not Satan. Far too often people rush to the conclusion that Satan caused this calamity. When there's an earthquake, a, a monster hurricane, or a tsunami, or a deadly epidemic, it is immediately thought that Satan is the ultimate cause. This is true of some of our charismatic friends. This is true of those who believe in open theism, and I'm sure there are other groups as well, but this is not how the Word of God speaks of such events. 
In fact, the Bible, in the Bible, for example, many earthquakes are attributed to God, to be sure, and none of them are attributed to Satan. In 2 Samuel 28, verse 8, then the earth shook and quaked, the foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because God was angry. Isaiah 13, 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place and the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Or Psalm 29, 4 through 8, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a, a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, wherever that is. But it's this idea of shaking and rocking. And Job 9, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars and, and a whole list of other scriptures that talk about God being behind earthquakes and disasters and global tragedies as well as personal tragedies. It doesn't mean that Satan's not involved, but it does mean that Satan is on a leash Nowhere in the Bible do we find Satan causing an epidemic, an earthquake, or any other disaster. And when we do find Satan wreaking havoc upon the earth, it is only by the express permission of God. The whole point of Job 1 and 2 is to demonstrate that Satan is only allowed to operate in such a way that accomplishes the sovereign purposes of God. He's on a leash. He can do nothing without God's permission. Remember this, too, that to the Apostle Paul, Jesus said to Simon, to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has requested, or some of your translations say demanded, permission to sift you like wheat. The salient point there is he had to ask permission. That we think of, of God and the devil as kind of a yin and yang, and it's not that way. God is infinitely preeminent over all. Satan, the devil, is a created being, and he is absolutely under the sovereign control of God. The point here is simply this. God is absolutely sovereign over calamity, no matter what it is. Whether it be personal suffering or the kind of disaster we've been witnessing around the world this week, God is in control. And as Paul says, God is does all things after the counsel of his will. He does how many things? All things. That means everything that happens today. Everything that happened over, since in December when the outbreak began. God does all of these things after the counsel of his will. And another way of thinking about that is, who does God take counsel from in the time of calamity? Answer, he takes counsel from himself. We need to remember that God is completely sovereign. He is infinite in wisdom. And he is perfect in love. 
all at the same time. He is completely sovereign. He is infinite in wisdom. And he is perfect in love. And beloved, that means he has 10,000 purposes for a global pandemic that he is not obliged to reveal to us. If he revealed it all to us, there would be no reason for faith. But in the end, we'll find that all of his purposes were holy and wise and loving, and all of them are those things for which he is worthy of praise. This is not only true of cataclysmic things that affect the whole world, but even in the very personal issues of disabled children. Listen to Exodus 4, 10 through 11. Moses is complaining that he's not gifted to go to Egypt. He's not a good speaker. And you remember God's response? Who has made man's mouth? Or, he continues, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord does these things. And he does them for his purposes. This is one of the many reasons why believers can be joyful in the midst of trial. God is doing something. And we can only imagine, and we should try to imagine, what he might be doing. But his word tells us emphatically that he is at work. Beloved, we need to be very careful not to try to defend or protect God by denying his sovereignty. And people will say, well, if God is good and God is all-powerful, then why didn't he do something? Why didn't he protect us? And you're going to be tempted. People are going to be tempted to say, well, listen, it's not his fault. He would do something if he could. It's not that he didn't know. Or maybe it is that he didn't know, the open theist would say. He just didn't, he didn't know. He had the power, but he, he didn't know. And others will say, he knew, but he doesn't have the power. Look, I understand that it's well-intentioned. They're not trying to assault God, but they are. We need to be careful in our attempts to understand that we don't blame God or try to protect God and find ourselves being contrary to the Word of God. I think John Piper, what he says is best when, when he says this, if you strip God of his sovereignty, his absolute control over a world calamity, you don't have a sovereign God to offer people on the other end of the calamity, which is their only hope for being being able to survive the awful future that has been opened to them. In other words, you cannot counsel people to trust in God's sovereignty after the tragedy if you denied God's sovereignty before the tragedy. Our greatest hope is that God is sovereign over all things, that Satan is not loose, like some kind of a loose cannon doing whatever he pleases. To the contrary, the fact that God is, has good purposes for every moment of suffering he allows in our un, is our unmistakable hope, even 
when the earth beneath us is shaking and disease is all around us. Beloved, this is when our theology really matters. This is when your formal theology had better turn into practical theology or you're up a creek. There's a reason God gave us his word. How about this? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. All of this makes Romans 8.28 one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And what an amazing, hope-giving promise this is. In all things, God is working for your good. And what is the good? Well, look, it may not be a new house. It may not be a check unexpectedly coming into the mail. It, It may not be you suddenly get healed. What it is, we know. Because Paul has told us that the good is that he is conforming us to the image of his Son. He is making us more like Jesus. And you know what? If you've been lazy about your ministry to other people, and this coronavirus wakes you up to the need and the ability to help other people, even in that, if you act on it, you become more like Jesus. If you find yourself praying more, it's because you have been made more like Jesus. If you're asking hard questions and hoping that someone would be able to open the Bible to you to answer those questions, God is moving you toward the likeness of Jesus. What an amazing, hope-giving promise this is. Beloved, my appeal to you is very, very simple. Let God be God. And remember that he reigns over calamity, and Satan doesn't. We do not believe in the sovereignty of Satan. We believe in the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his Father and his Spirit. Number three, what are God's purposes in calamity? God's purposes in calamity. Well, first we need to acknowledge that God has, again, 10,000 purposes for what's happening in and around the world right now. He is not obliged to reveal any of it to us except what he's already revealed in his word. But there are some things that he has revealed relative to why he allows tragedy and pain and hardship. There are two that strike me as most important. First of all, God is calling all people everywhere to repent. God is calling all people everywhere to repent. And we're thinking about why God is using this, or what is the thought behind God using this to cause everyone to repent. We, we need look only at Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, And what did Satan tempt them to do? Basically, he tempted them to be autonomous. You don't need God. You don't need God. What you need is food. What you need is beauty. What you need is, you fill in the blank. 
Has God said? Listen, you don't have to trust God. You don't need God. His word isn't any better than my word. This was the temptation of autonomy, that we've got this. We can handle this. Um, We don't need God's help, thank you very much. We have got this figured out. And then suddenly a virus comes on the scene. We're not sure where it came from or how, but it's covered the face of the earth. And it's like smoke in a room. You can't grasp it. You can't do anything with it. You just have to wait it out until it goes away. In Luke 13, 1 through 5, here's a scripture you can look at. Luke 13, 1 through 5, familiar story of Jesus. Uh, Not really a story. This was an interaction between him and his disciples. And here's how it reads. Luke 13, beginning with verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the the Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or... Those 18 who were, uh, on whom the tower of Siloam fell and, and it killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I guarantee you that was not the answer they were hoping for. Lord, what, what, what about Compassion. This is an important passage. This is not what the disciples expected, nor is it anything that any celebrity in our culture or any wise man in our culture would expect. Perhaps they expected him to tell them that God had no part in that tragedy. And it's interesting, the kinds of tragedies that are mentioned here, the disciples bring up one that was perpetrated on people by a man. But Jesus also brings up a natural disaster that was caused by no man. Jesus explains that those tragedies should be viewed by us as God's call to repentance. Every calamity reminds us of what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die and experience the full wrath of God's holy judgment, which, by the way, is one of the attributes that get left out of the discussion. If God is good and gracious and merciful and kind, how can you say that he did this? And our response is, he's all of those things, but you left some things out. He's also holy and just. And if he didn't punish sin, he would be a rogue judge who should be thrown off the bench. We live in a world that hates God and denies the reality that we live every moment before the face of God and in the very presence of God and that someday we're going to have to give an account to him for the way we lived. 
Calamity has the power to jolt us out of our apathy and insensitivity to our ultimate plight and brings us face to face with morality. I love what Solomon said. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of mirth. It is better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. Why? Because nobody thinks about the end of their life at a party. Nobody takes stock of, of what they believe and why at a party. You're there just to do things to make yourself feel good. But when calamity strikes, you ask the hard questions. Reality is, in this life, security is a myth. It's a myth. It doesn't matter how much toilet paper you buy. It doesn't matter how much milk and meat and grain you purchase. Security is a myth. All of us are going to die. All of us are going to die. Last year, I asked the congregation, do you remember that 60 Minutes episode where they recently interviewed the very last member of the Civil War, the, 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 um, um, the Yankee soldiers in the Civil War, the very last man. Did you see that interview? And there were like three people who said, yeah, I think I saw that. No, you didn't. All of those people have died. All of them. All of them. There are no exceptions. We are all going to die. Security is a myth. And the only thing that will matter on that day, when we meet him face to face, the only thing that will matter is what my relationship is with the God with whom I must reckon. Every tragedy is a call to repent of our God-denying, Christ-belittling lives and fly to the cross for repentance and hope and reconciliation with God. We need to see the global pandemic as God's way of mingling judgment and mercy. It's judgment in the sense that all of us deserve what thousands of people have faced last week in China and now Italy and Spain and some even here in the United States. It is mercy because God offers us the eternal remedy against his judgment. And his remedy is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the grace of God that rescues us from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is the grace of God that rescues us from the wrath of God. In fact, no calamity in this world was ever greater than the death of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, there's never been a more severe act of judgment than when God crushed his son on the cross. On the other hand, there has never been a greater act of mercy than when God crushed his son on the cross. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 that God sent him a messenger of Satan to torment him. God sent him a messenger of Satan to torment him. And, and that sounds inconceivable. And yet Paul understood why. He says this, to keep, to keep me from, uh, I'm sorry, uh, to keep him clinging to 
God's grace so that he would not trust in himself, but in God who raises the dead. He is committed to doing whatever it takes to wake us up to our own helplessness and Christ's sufficiency for everything that we need, including death. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9, Paul writes this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, brothers, of the affliction that we have experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God wants you to be dependent. In fact, here's a better way of saying it. We don't always feel dependent, but we always are. And sometimes God brings things into our lives to remind us of what has always been true, that we are absolutely dependent upon him. God intends for COVID-19 to wake us up to the reality that our utter dependence upon God and the promise of his judgment is true so that we will fly to the cross and find mercy enough to save and sustain us for eternity. And so God's first purpose for calamity is calling all people everywhere to repent. And secondly, God is calling us to show the world what God is like. How do we do that? Well, first, by showing mercy and compassion to those who suffer. Christians of all people should be the first to sacrifice for the well-being of hurting people. I think of in the days back in medieval times, though I want to be clear to my children that I didn't actually experience it and wasn't there, but when the plague broke out, everyone ran for their lives, except many Christians who ran to the plague instead of from the plague because they believed these things. And they knew that God had called them not to be primarily concerned about themselves, but the welfare of others. Yes, we weep with those who weep, but we also get busy serving and loving and helping in practical ways. By this we show the world what God is like. That's what Jesus meant when he said things like this. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16. Or Matthew 5.44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, we think of rain as something that's kind of a bummer. If you're a farmer, you love rain. This is what Jesus is saying. God sends the rain on just people and wicked people. Second, we show the world what God is like by telling them about what God did for them on the cross of Christ. How he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all and in our place so that their sin could be judged in a way that frees them to experience eternal life in his presence. All our sin for all of his righteousness. That's the promise of the gospel. 
all of our sin, for all of his righteousness, not to him who works, but to the one who believes. Beloved, we honestly have no idea what eternal spiritual purposes God is accomplishing through the tragedies that COVID-19 is bringing upon this world. But we can be sure of this. God is completely sovereign. He's infinite in wisdom. He's perfect in love. And other people need to see his wisdom and his love and even his sovereign mercy in our sacrifices for them. I praise the Lord for all of, the, all of our people who are not here today because they're making this sacrifice for the good of our community and for the good of this church. And praise God for you. I know you'd rather be here. We would rather have you here. But for the good of this community, you don't, don't think for a moment that the neighbors across the street didn't realize this morning that our parking lot is mostly empty. That's a good testimony. That shows love for this community. And this is why we do it. So how should this affect our lives practically? Well, a lot of ways, perhaps. Here's a few. Let this truth become a rock under your feet while we struggle with the effects of COVID-19. Your theology matters. And you probably will have Christian friends who get discouraged some of whom are, are locked up overseas and aren't allowed out of their house or their room. Um, my daughter-in-law's sister is stuck in Germany, probably will be for a while. Um, theology matters. And there will be proper occasion to bring it to bear in the hearts of people as they struggle with what's going on, especially if they're sick. And secondly, let this drive us to worship God for who he really is rather than for what we prefer him to be. Not only let God be God, but worship God who is God. And number three, let it, let it drive us to prayer. Prayer, first of all, for our own souls, that God would expose in us anything that needs to be repented of and changed. And pray that God would, would cause repentance among the nations, that people who are experiencing really the throes of this disease would repent or call others to repentance where they are. And by the way, I was going to announce this at the end, but I'll do it now. It seems to be the appropriate time. But... Right now, or in a few minutes, you'll be receiving an email from the church. Um, it'll be a sign-up genius. And so here's a practical way to apply this. Uh, we would like for you to sign up with your family or with a group that's not very large, you know what I mean, that you will take 15 minutes in that scheduled plan between noon and midnight Sign up for a time when you will spend 15 minutes praying for the lost, praying for the nations, praying for your unbelieving friends, and praising God that he is sovereign over these things. And I hope you'll take advantage of that. 
And then lastly, let it motivate us toward practical acts of sacrifice, mercy, and compassion on those who we know are suffering personal earthquakes and tsunamis and diseases. This is our opportunity to serve. This is our opportunity to, on the one hand, give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's, to obey the authority over us, and yet at the same time find practical ways to minister to those who are in fear or those who are hurting in some way that we can minister to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. And we confess, as always, that we are unworthy of it. Even now, Lord, when, when our ministry has been truncated so much and so few of us can actually be here, but even that, Lord, we praise you. Even in this, we praise you because you are God over all. And you have placed us here at this time in this technological age where we can minister your word throughout this community and even around the world and teaching people how to think properly, how to interpret what they're seeing and hearing and to do it in a manner that brings great glory to Jesus and ministers love to one another. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for it all. In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen.